and gentlemen, welcome to the Source Material Comics Podcast. Coming back at you here. Boy, oh boy, are we in, I'm going to call it my wheelhouse, because I love me some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But I will say that this this book was definitely on my radar, but as far as covering it on, on covering this on the podcast, it may have crossed my mind, but somebody said, hey, we need to talk about that, and that is Alexis Haina. Alexis, welcome back to the Source Material Comics Podcast. Are you ready to talk Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin this evening? Totally. <laughs> uh, totally tabular. All right. On my inner Michelangelo. I love it. Uh, and we are not alone. No, by golly, we are not. Uh, we have scoured the sewers of New York. Benjamin, that's horrible. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Benjamin J. Cologne, you've talked turtles with me before. We started at the very beginning, and by golly, I think we're almost to a point. What we're going to be talking about tonight is almost the very end, it feels like. But uh, we're going to be talking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the last Ronin, sir. You are here. Are you ready to discuss it? Yes, I am. Uh, and just for the record, you knowing what I know about the sewers of New York, you don't want to scour any part of it. <laughs> you want to scour any part of them. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the last Ronin. This was a five-issue series by IDW. IDW's had the Turtles license for quite a while, but uh, The Last Ronin hits the shelves first issue, cover date October of 2020. So let's just do this before we get into things. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about like what we heard about this. Did we know it was coming ahead of time or was it word of mouth after the, the issues dropped? And Alexis, tell me. I guess, I mean, I love asking the person that wants to do the book why they wanted to do the book. So I guess that's going to be the first question, Alexis. Why did you want to do this book? And and did you hear about it? What what drove you to be like, okay, we've got to talk about this? It was word of mouth. I came across an article discussing the first issue when it was coming out on Facebook. They were making a big deal about the how they were not going to reveal for a while who the which turtle was had survived they said all the turtles are dead except one and they don't give any clues and i had so much fun talking with fans at my tables like because everybody who knew this book was coming out it's like which turtle do you think it is and there's all this concept of it's too obvious to be leonardo it's too obvious to be Raphael. It doesn't make sense to be Donnie or Michelangelo. And we're just going back and forth trying to figure this out. Just the idea that, because it does go back, I think, to the first issue of Ninja Turtles with Laird and Eastman and how they really didn't have distinct personalities. They didn't even have the different colored headbands. That came in because of the freaking cartoon series, because they're like, yeah, uh, we need to market these turtles more individually so we can sell toys. Yeah, and that is the truth. So I feel like this really goes back to what these two had originally created, the concept, the core of what the Ninja Turtles were before they became the most merchandised upon merchandise. And I'm not complaining about that. I played with Ninja Turtle toys when I was a kid. I have been a Ninja Turtle fan since I was little. I was the only girl on the playground willing to play Ninja Turtles with the boys. That's awesome. Now you they were... needed some girls. Listen, my love for the Ninja Turtles really knows no bounds. Huge fan of the cartoon. Obviously, that's how I was indoctrinated into the Ninja Turtles. I didn't know it was a comic beforehand. I was too young to even understand that. I didn't realize this was a comic book property. And when I figured that out later on down the line, I, you wouldn't believe how stoked I was because I'd been reading comics for quite a while. Recently, we had the video game Shredder's Revenge show up on the Xbox Game Pass and my love for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, of course, 
has risen again. And it was shortly after I read this book that that video game popped up. So now, Benjamin, the last Ronin. Were you hearing the hype about this at all? What was going on on your end of things? I don't know. I feel like I might have heard some things, but I'm so far removed from, like, current Ninja Turtle stuff. Like, I know the comic's been going on with its own continuity for off and on, but pretty consistently for, you know, for years. I just haven't kept up with it. I'm sure I've seen it advertised in places and I've heard it come up. And I think it kind of largely was, like, on the fringes of, you know, my sort of attention until... Until you guys, you know, uh, told me about it and asked me if, if I wanted to participate. And I, okay, you know, I'm a huge Ninja Turtle fan, so I'd figure. And and I'm long overdue to kind of dive back into like current Ninja Turtle stuff. And and so here we are. I think what happened with me is I heard the hype. Uh, you know, kind of like with Alexis, she was talking to people that were discussing what was going on. I was mostly listening to comic book podcasts and they were kind of discussing the same thing. I did not want anything spoiled for me. I think I was able to avoid that because I remember reading the first issue that we're going to be getting into and figuring out a couple things. I was want to know who is this last turtle? I knew the premise of what we were getting. Uh, I did not know full spoilers at that point. So, uh, so regardless, I guess, my goodness, I don't do this very often, but folks, you're here to listen to us discuss The Last Ronin, spoilers are going to happen. So if you want to read this book, I would highly suggest you read the book prior to listening to us talk about it. But to each their own, just be aware. There's a few very good reveals in, throughout this series, by the way. Uh, as a companion piece to this, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think I'm airing it before this. I've got a 20, 10, well, we'll say 10, 15 minutes of me talking the first issue of Fugitoid. So you may have heard me discuss that before you're listening to this episode it's going to be released prior to the last ronin review that we have here so fugitoid something i that is a character i didn't know anything about i i knew a little bit about i've seen the character before but i don't know much about what happened so i've learned a lot we'll just put it that way getting prepared for what we're going to discuss tonight so our first issue is titled wish for death and the synopsis goes like so so story by kevin eastman peter laird and tom waltz script by tom waltz and kevin eastman layouts by kevin eastman pencils inks by Esau and Isaac Escorza. And uh, there is definitely some switch-ups in the art, especially in the flashback scenes. We got page 39 art by Ben Bishop, color assistants Samuel Plata, colors by Luis Antonio Delgado, and letters by Sean Lee. So there we go. Uh, So we start this out, we got a lone Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle with a black mask making his way across a filthy river to infiltrate the mega city of New York. Uh, and, I, and this is definitely taking place in the future. We got hover cars. We got all sorts of crazy stuff. You could tell it's a futurescape, pretty much. Uh, once inside, this uh, turtle finds a motorcycle and heads to their target, a large towering building. Finding an entrance through a sewer grate, they emerge only to be spotted by some cyborg guards. Battling throughout the city, the turtle finds a hover car and ends up crashing it, escaping to the rooftops. This lone turtle still has their sights on infiltrating the tower that belongs to the grandson of the Shredder, Karai's son, Roku Hiroto. He's been he's been aware, made aware of the disturbance taking uh, place below in his city. Making it into the tower, the turtle finds the place crawling with foot soldiers. Engaging them, the turtle finds a camera and swears to Hiroto that he is coming for him. Astonished. Hiroto cannot believe he is seeing a mutant turtle as he believed he had killed them all off. 
a mistake he won't make twice as he sends all his resources to kill this one mutant turtle. In a fight with one of Stockman's giant robots, Baxter Stockman's giant robots, the turtle is knocked through a window and falls a few stories, crashing onto the ground below. Badly injured, he escapes into the sewer, followed by a mysterious girl. The turtle is aware they are dying and looks to commit seppuku, but passes out before being able to complete the act. Awakening, the turtle finds themselves healing in a bed, being served some food by April O'Neil, who calls the turtle, finally we get a name, Michelangelo. So there we go. That is issue one. Sorry to keep it so vague, but I wanted to, you know, it was a, wanted to keep that, uh, that reveal secret. Uh, so what do you think here, Alexis? Our first issue, Wish for Death. What are your thoughts? couple little notes that I made. First thing, I really love, we have, we'll go ahead and say the name, Michelangelo talking to, we don't know who it is. They're off panel. And it isn't until a few pages in, we realize he's conversing with the ghosts of his dead brothers. But again, well done on keeping the uh, mystery of which turtle it is. We do not see the colors of their masks, nor do we see their weapons. Uh, this turtle, Michelangelo is fighting with all of them. And he shows proficiency with the size, the bow staff, the swords. I can't remember if it's in this issue or in later one. He's got the he's got tonfas, which we have actually seen uh, Raphael fight with in a couple of different versions of the story. I know a couple of variations. They've given uh, Michelangelo and Raphael different weapons, uh, mostly because there is a very large backlash with people saying, "Why the hell did you give Michelangelo freaking nunchucks when they're pretty much useless weapons?" <laughs> I've gotten I've gotten into arguments with a friend of mine who's a martial arts uh, not master, but he loves he's trained self trained in uh, several uh, different weapon styles, and we talk about how he loves to show off with the nunchucks. To which I say, you do realize that a club is going to do the exact amount of damage as those things, and there's less chance you're going to you know hit yourself in the head. Hit yourself. <laughs> right, right. I had to yeah. look up Tonfa to figure out what in the world you were talking about. These are like nightsticks almost, right? Yeah. And yes, I, I, it is uh, when sign ninjas, I think is what they're called, show mm -hmm. up. Yeah, he's got the Tonfas. Uh, there is, I can't remember if it showed up in particular in any books, but I do know the most recent animated Ninja Turtles series has Raph finding with Tonfas instead of size. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I kind of like that they've got him with the different weapons like that. I think this is a minor thing and maybe it's just me. I do love how fast paced the action is. The illustrations on the action are incredible. Uh, I, yeah, I cannot get over how gorgeous it is and how well I follow it. I just wish the panels were a little bigger. There are so many tiny panels of him fighting the robots and I get it. They're trying to get through you know, the more meaningless action as fast as they can. It, you know, it's almost the equivalent of a fight montage. But these, the detail is so gorgeous. And I'm sort of going, I want to look at it better. I want to see it bigger. Why is it so tiny? <laughs> the action is nonstop throughout this this issue. And there's a couple there's a couple other parts uh, throughout the series where it's just like a lot of times you're just going to get like one page maybe dedicated to a fight. But this is... Michelangelo trying to make his way through the gauntlet almost. And he is looking to end things. He's fighting here and then he gets through one stage. It's very much like a video game. <laughs> you know, he gets through one stage and the next the next round is going to be some uh, sign ninjas or something like that. Um, and he's going into different parts of this tower to try and get up there. It's very, uh, you know, it's not it, there is a lot of action, a lot of action. 
if nothing else, and and I got invited to participate a little bit uh, a couple of days ago, and I wasn't sure how what I would have to contribute. But as long as we're talking about art, we're you know I can. Uh, I knew, yeah, offer yeah I knew you'd come through. So I want to. I actually want to thank you for you know giving me an opportunity to be introduced to the art of the uh, Scores of Brothers. Who uh, I gotta find more stuff that they've done, if anything. Um, apparently, the, these these guys are, you know, uh, Kevin Eastman's like proteges or of some kind. Um, oh. As far as to the best of my like, you know, thirty second re- thirty seconds of research, this whole five issue series is actually really a big old love letter to like, you know, the like eighty four original oh, yeah. like OG Eastman and Laird Ninja Turtles. This is very much affectionate towards those original comics that they did and also this is where my knowledge of like current teenage mutant ninja turtles kind of fails me because i to the best of my knowledge this is the most that eastman and laird have worked together in years that i'm aware of like they've done ninja turtle projects pretty consistently for a long time but it's as far as i know it's it's always usually uh, it's, it's almost always been one or the other and in this in this case, they both have a hand in uh, the story, very like a big hand in the story, and even in the art, which we'll definitely get into soon. The uh, Scores of Brothers, there's there's a lot of influence. Uh, there's a lot of Eastman and Laird influence on their art. They also seem to be influenced by a lot of things that seem to have also influenced Eastman and Laird. Because I see touches of Frank Miller in their work. I see a lot of Ghost in the Shell in in uh, a lot of the stuff, the 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 uh, backgrounds, the the future like cyberpunk type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a little bit of you know, there's there's a little bit of the crow in there as far like you know in in terms of the art style, in terms of the tone. It's all really interesting stuff. And and one thing I will say, like I like the story that they're telling here, but it's not a particularly complicated story. From nope. beginning to end, it's pretty straightforward. That's not necessarily a bad thing if you can tell it in an entertaining way, and it's being told in a really entertaining way, you know, by the art and by you know, kind of getting into uh, who we, you know, we find out at the end of this issue that it's Michelangelo, which I think was a great move because honestly, that was the one I least expected it to be. Right. Uh, it makes it much more interesting just. For, by by what we kind of know in the pop culture about who Michelangelo is, him being the you know the happy-go-lucky you know funny party turtle, and him doing decidedly unhappy-go-lucky un you know party-ish things in this in this uh, first issue, and as we go through the series. He's, you know, pretty grim and pretty dark, and and he actually has pretty good reason. He's been through a lot. We don't, you know, we can assume that from the first issue, and then little by little we find out exactly what he's been through, and then you understand why he is where he is uh, by the time this issue is done. One of the things that has you hooked when you read this is, like, you want to know how we got to this point. We want to know what happened, why why is it just Michelangelo? Why is he carrying all the weapons? There's so many whys that this first issue puts out there without really making it obvious. Alexis, you mentioned it. They did a great job of keeping these voices off panel. So when you see Mike, Mikey running through the cityscape and those voices are coming off the panel, you're thinking he's running with his brothers. But you're like, mm-hmm. what's up with the black band? What's up with the black face mask? What's up with all the, why does he have all the weapons? If you had no idea, which going into the story, I would have loved to have picked this issue up having no clue what was going on. And then getting that reveal at the very end that, oh crap, it's just one guy. And he, the turtles, I mean, you do see the turtles, you do see the, his brothers 
but notice how you know when you see them they're kind of faded off into the and they're not the color is not there it's there's definitely something wrong but it's just enough to kind of throw you off if you had no idea you'd think it's the four turtles doing their thing yeah ben my biggest note for this issue is it's michelangelo like he's not he he's not the mikey of old clearly something has changed with him something is something is traumatized i know right like that's that's a that's the first in like a couple like i said of pretty good reveals that some are more predictable than others but all of them at the very least make sense and and work for the story that they're telling so even the ones that you can kind of see coming you you're kind of glad that they are what they are uh we get our first look at uh a Hiroto, uh, Hiroko. I could, I said it perfectly in my mind the whole time I was reading this damn thing. <laughs> but when it comes to actually saying it out loud, Hiroku Hiroto. Thank you very much. Uh, what do you think of uh, the, the way this guy looks? What do you think, Alexis? I definitely see what you guys were talking about with the style with the crow because this, I swear <laughs> to God, it, it, this guy looks exactly like Brandon Lee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hell, it wouldn't surprise me if that was actually intentional. They say he's Karai's bastard son, so we know that he has Japanese blood in him, but it's possible that Karai slept with a, a white dude, and Brandon Lee was, was he half Asian or a quarter Asian? I can't remember. But I'm yeah, say half, sure. Yeah. I think so. So it's entirely possible that they, you know, wanted him to have that, to emulate that same kind of look. And what are these that are flying around him? Ravens or, or crows or something like that? I mean... Right there, I don't even know if they get into that. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it, it's interesting that, okay, what's up with the crows? Like, w- w- there's got to be something going on there. I, you know, Shredder didn't have, Shredder had mutant animals running around him, so uh, who knows? But just an, another little, I guess, cherry on the top of this Sunday is uh, of the mystery I, uh, of what's going on. Like, okay, we get our first look at this Shredder's grandson and the fact that he's this this ruler of this city and uh, he's clearly there's more to him than what you just see. Um, anything else here on this first issue? Is just... those smaller mousers look like bulldogs? Yeah, they do look like bulldogs. They got little legs. Yeah. Like, uh, like they're four-legged. Usually the mousers we see were two-legged, at least the ones that I'm used to anyway. Yeah, these look like little bulldogs. <laughs> That's little pretty funny. Bulldogs with lasers on their heads. Love it. We got a couple of little hints and in, in explanations as to how we got to this sort of post-apocalyptic future. And, and like most post-apocalyptic futures, they give kind of some mention to, you know, uh, environmental damage and how, you know, human beings being human beings, they screwed up, you know, they screwed everything up and polluted the uh, the earth to the point where... Uh, you know, everything is uninhabitable or uh, close to it. But I'm not sure if we get a whole lot of point A to point B explanation as to how uh, Hirota became in charge of it all. I mean, no. I guess we're I guess we're meant to assume that, you know, once the uh, once the turtles were out of the way, there was nothing to stop the Foot Clan from taking over New York. But yeah. I mean, you kind of meant to assume a lot of that. That's, you know, something that I was kind of waiting for. I guess a bigger explanation of, and I don't know if we really fully got it. I don't think we do. Yeah, I understand the need to know. It's like, well, how the heck did we get from point A to point B? But sometimes I think it's just a better story because it really is scarier to let your mind fill in the blanks. 
You know, was New York starting to fall apart before the Foot Clan seized control? Did they do all of this once they thought all the turtles were dead? I always thought it was just the turtles and Splinter up against Shredder and the Foot, but that is that's not the case. I mean that it they've also at this time at some point amassed a, a large clan to go up against the Foot. Uh, so anyway, just that's one of the big gaps for me. It's like I didn't realize that there were more people involved in trying to stop Hiroto uh, from taking over. So there's a couple of different like continuities too. Like that. Uh, I mean, there's like Eastman and Laird's con- you know, comic book continuity that that's still going on and mm-hmm. has been since 1984. There's a couple of different Ninja Turtle continuities in the comics. And then there's a couple of different ones, you know, from TV, you know, the comic book continuity that they're following. The Hamato clan is one, you know, one clan and they're forever at war with, you know, the uh, the Oroku clan Shredder and, you know, Shredder's part of the Foot clan. I don't know the details of all of that. I'm, that's one thing that I also mentioned. Like it, it like you're thrown in the deep end with this this story, and you're there are some things that you're not you don't necessarily have to know. Right. But the, there are other things that you kind of feel like you should know ahead of time because you like if you're anything like me, you feel like you missed something. Right. It doesn't ruin the story, but it probably makes it more uh, understandable if you were following all of that stuff that came before it. If right. there is any, I looked at it like this. Just kind of like you did. I was thrown in on the deep end. Uh, there were stuff I, you know, stuff I was looking at. I was like, okay, well, I obviously I missed something. Um, but yeah, just like you said, it's it's not, and you get the gist of what's supposed to happen or what has happened as to how or why we got there. Yeah, that's something I would love to know. Uh, and if I've got to go back and read some stuff, I'll gladly do it. But all right, well, let's go ahead. We'll get into the second issue, which is First to Fall. It's titled First to Fall. So in this issue, we get to see the past where a wounded splinter is brought into April's place after a battle with the foot. Now, this is this is where, you know, OK, we're going to start laying out how we got to where we're at in the first issue. But anyway, Splinter's brought into April's place after a battle with the Foot Clan that has left him gravely injured. Enraged, Raphael goes out alone and faces off with Karai and a legion of Foot Clan. He is outnumbered, but gets to go one-on-one with Karai, falling into the river and ends up succumbing to his injuries, dying. I believe at that point, Karai, we find out later, I mean, I don't think it's expressly put in this issue or not. I don't know. But anyway, she's in a coma after this, I believe. So that's and she's kept alive, which we see in the first issue. Uh, uh, Hiroto is has her like in his office in this uh, chamber of some sorts. But she's been in a in a coma since then. Um, Mikey regularly converses with the ghosts of his brothers. Uh, he does plan on killing the last Oroku. We learn Mikey intended on walking into the mountains to die at one point after his after his brothers died, but began hearing voices that his destiny was not complete, that he was to die on the battlefield as a Ronin, killing the last Oroku. Mikey and April uh, get a chance to catch up. She lets Mikey know that he has gotten bigger and stronger due to his mutation. Uh, she also introduces him to his savior, the person that brought him to April, That's Casey Marie Jones, April and Casey's daughter. Casey has been training and is part of this uh, underground resistance, uh, only hearing her mother talk of the turtles uh, from her past. Uh, Roku Hiroto at this point also looks to crack down on the city and find this mutant turtle. 
Uh, so that's kind of, I mean, that is a brief overview of issue two, first of all. Uh, Alexis, we'll go back to you first here. What are your thoughts on our second issue? They really do throw you in. First couple of panels we is April thinking about when they when the turtles came in with a wounded and dying Splinter and Raph running off because it's Raphael. He never thinks straight. Little uh, notes here that I really appreciated. I, it's I, I'm sure it's common knowledge to the three of us that the the foot were originally designed to be a parody of the hand from Marvel comics, and when we. Saw Rai fighting, she is dressed very similar to how Electra was dressed in the comics, and I refuse oh. to believe that's a coincidence. Oh right. my god. <laughs> I I thought it was Electra at first. I, I, like, ha- I have thoughts. And the reveal about Casey. I, I just love this quick panel here when she calls for Casey and Michelangelo's like, wait, what? Casey's still alive? Just yeah. like, no. It's a weird fuse believe. So yeah, love the reveal of the daughter. The April oh April missing an arm and a leg, or like you know, part of her leg and part of her arm. I mean, wow, that was something else too. Like yeah, and oh my god, the bit here with with uh, our oh great, now I can't pronounce his name. Damn it, Jesse, it's contagious. <laughs> Sorry, Appalachia's going everywhere. Yeah, just talking to his uh, new lieutenant, captain, whatever it is. And it's like, the price for failing me again will be the same as your predecessors. And we realize the guy that he was talking to in the previous issue is not just dead. He's got, he's decapitated and the crows are eating his skull. It's just, wow. It's like, not only was that harsh, that was fast. Yeah. I, I, I got upset because I was like, why would you kill like one of the best people was he training with somebody in this one and he gets hit that did or does that happen later? I can't remember. But anyway, uh, Oroku Hiroto is off the chain sometimes like he is. He gets if he gets disrespected in any way, he's very Darth Vaderish in my opinion. Like he will put you in your place or end up killing you. But there's one instance I remember specifically. If it's in this issue, great. If it's in a future issue, I, I, I don't care. But he's training with them and he ends up getting hit. And it's like one of the only guys that can land a blow on him. And because he did that, he kills the guy. I'm like, dude, that's probably one of your best fighters. Why would you want to do that? Obviously, yeah. he's not. Here on. it is. He, he gets a strike on the arm and he says, hmm, excellent strike. Unfortunately for you, there's only one master and he slices his throat. I was like, what, dude? <sighs> All right. Whatever. <laughs> also love these uh, extra flashbacks uh, that are illustrated to look exactly like the 84 comic down to the black and white. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it's slightly cheaper design, but it works so well, especially when you know just how much Eastman and Laird were involved in this. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, one of my notes here was the flashback scenes when they go and do the black and white. Clearly, that is paying tribute to what's come before. And it's a great way to do it. It looks and feels like what you used to read in those comics. I loved it 100%. Ben, tell me about tell me about Karai and Electra. <laughs> well, by way of a couple of other things. Um, All right, then. Eastman and Laird drew a lot of influence in the first place between Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from Frank Miller's Daredevil. If I had to pick one issue out of these five that kind of paid the most tribute to that, it would hands down 100% be this one because there's Frank Miller influence all over the place, all over this issue. Off the top of my head, the first thing I can see is, you know, April, the, like the overhead shot of like April in, uh, laying in bed. The, mm. That was a thematic like element in Daredevil Born Again. That was not drawn by Frank Miller, but I guarantee you he wrote it to be that way. 
I, I have so much to say about this art because it's so awesome. I love the I love the art in this comic so much. But in that shot, in, in that one uh, like full page splash page, you don't notice that April is missing an arm and a leg unless you look very closely. Like there's only one knee sticking up out of the covers. The other arm is you know like under the pillow. But if you look to the right, there's only one boot on the floor. Then you start looking around and you see, oh, wait a minute, there's a prosthetic arm and there's a prosthetic leg on the other side of the bed. And you kind of start putting it together there. You know, there's a lot of that. The whole entire fight scene between Raphael and Foot Clan and then eventually uh, Karai, who's absolutely dressed, you know, dressed to look like Elektra. That is 1000% Frank Miller, like a Frank Miller laid out fight scene. If you go back to the credits for all of these issues, Kevin Eastman apparently did layouts for the entire comic that the Escorza brothers then, you know, drew in full. And as far as the flashbacks, I don't know if there's confirmation one way or another. I don't know if it's been said in, in, in interviews or whatever. I don't know for sure whether or not Eastman and Lair didn't draw these flashbacks themselves. Right. It looks that close to to their style. If it's these, if if it's the uh, Scorza brothers doing doing an imitation of of Eastman and Laird's style, my God, these guys did their homework. Right, dude. Uh, but I lean more towards like this is literally like Eastman and Laird doing the artwork for these flashbacks. Either way, it took me right back. Like I'm holding like the original, uh, you know. Mirage like trade paperback of, of like the original Ninja Turtle comics in my hand right now. And it took me right back to like how these look the, you know, the line work and like the half tone stuff. Like I know how, you know, the like the gray tones, that's a whole process. And that was like a crude, you know, like extensive process that you actually had to cut out like texture pieces and, you know, lay them over. Like, you know, it's a whole thing that I don't know if you've ever seen done before, but I have. It's a whole extensive process that was done before you could do that sort of thing digitally. I was not expecting that. Yeah. It took me way back. It took me back to like, you know, the original reading the original comics. And that that's one of some of my favorite parts of this are the the flashback scenes that are in the style of the 84 comics. They do they do an interesting thing with the art too. Like um uh April mentions that um yeah, Michelangelo's mutation is kind of progressing. And it's mm-hmm. making him bigger. It's making him stronger. It's making him tougher. If you notice, it's also making him look more human. Like he's got more of a chin. He's got more of, you know, his his facial features are starting to kind of like, you know, the way the turtles are usually drawn, the eyes are farther apart. Like these, these are these are little details that hopefully like, you know, once you see him, you can't unsee them. But I don't think they're I don't think they're unintentional. I don't I think that's very much on purpose that. As the mutation progresses, the whole thing is he's starting to look like he's, he's starting to take on more human characteristics. Before and after this, you see like the the turtles, uh, how they looked in younger, like earlier times. And they don't look like this. They look, yeah. you know, like they look like how they usually look in a lot of other comics. They're short and they're, you know, much more turtle looking and they're, you know, a little bit cuddlier looking, I guess you'd say. Michelangelo in this comic looks like he could stop a bullet, you know? Yeah. It's too consistent to be done by accident. That's just like me as an artist. Like, how would I do something like that? Or how have I seen that done before? So I think it's part. It's all kind of part of the storytelling, whether or not that's, you know, the Scorza brothers doing it themselves or if that's Eastman and Laird kind of giving them notes on how to go about doing it. Like, well, either way, like this, I'm going to have a lot of great things to say about like how this art came came about and what it's, you know, what it ended up 
uh, mm-hmm. adding to the story, but it's just just the beginning, really. Right. I mean, I, we're we're getting into the meat of this story. You know, issue two kind of gives us, like I said, it shows us a little bit about what's come before. It's definitely adding upon the tragedy of what is motivating Michelangelo here, especially seeing uh, seeing April O'Neil, you know, as gravely injured. Apparent whatever injury that occurred, causing her to lose her leg and her arm. Again, another thing that you want to try and find out. They don't go into with this issue, um, but uh, the other thing with uh, Hiroto again, you know, he's definitely shaping up to be a villain here. That, that's <laughs> also a, a Frank Miller like Daredevil that like in Born Again, like oh, you see him constantly like that's the kingpin in Born Again. He's training like. Right. In his own in his penthouse against like you know nameless goons, and every once in a while he'll just randomly kill one of them. That's <laughs> that's straight out of the out of Daredevil. I talked a lot about the art, but one story thing that I'm glad happened in this issue is like if you're gonna tell the story of Raphael, how like how he dies, you better have him go out like a boss. Right. And this this nailed it. Like he went down. He took like two dozen dudes with him. It was great. Well, just look at the cover. I mean, the, the cover's got Raphael charging into battle, and he's holding his sides, but we see he's got a couple shurikens, multiple arrows. There's a sword behind him, and I refuse to believe that that was actually one he brought with him. That is probably one of the swords from the Foot Clan sticking into his uh, back. He is right. eating. He's got all these weapons jammed into his body, and he is not slowing down. By the way, my favorite turtle uh, is Raph, and uh, I hated to see him be the first to go, but I understand he's a hothead, and he got himself, he was so upset, got himself over and over his head and paid the price for it. So let's go ahead. We'll get into issue three, Fight or Flight. Uh, so in this issue, we see the past uh, and the of the rise of Aroku Hiroto, who leads the foot at the age of 16, 10 years after his mother's fight with Raph, who is now in a coma. I, I am going to just go ahead and say it was because of the fight, but I don't think that's confirmed. Now, now at this point, you know, in the story, we're, we're looking into the past, and when he becomes leader, he says he wants to make peace with the Hamato clan. Present day, Hiroto puts New York under martial law and advises the citizens it will not be lifted until justice can be served against the mutant turtle in their midst. Uh, April meets with Michelangelo to show him that she is thinking of acting their old robot friend fugitoid but are worried doing so may trigger baxter stockman uh to find them again now we flip back to the past where we see that the turtles and their team are trying to determine if hiroto's request for peace talks is genuine of course you don't want to trust a foot clan but what can you do if he wants to talk peace we'll try to talk peace they soon find out that is not the case that's the turtles headquarters is attacked by the foot stockman wants the fugitoid while Casey and Leonardo are having a hard time fighting off the foot soldier robots and the, unco- the oncoming Mouser assault unleashed by Stockman. As Fugitoid tries to escape, Stockman detonates the Mousers, causing a massive explosion and destroying almost everything. April was left without a leg and an arm, but was able to replace it with an advanced prosthesis. Also, during this time, she finds out that she is pregnant. Uh, Hiroto takes over New York while Mikey takes his brother's weapons and heads to Japan to try and find Donatello and Splinter. They had left prior to this attack to go over and talk with the Hamato clans over in Japan. Fast forwarding to the present, Casey goes to find some of her her resistance friends, and when she returns, they devise a plan to take out Stockman's headquarters. Mikey, however, doesn't want to endanger anyone else. However, April does convince him she has been been preparing for this for quite a while. 
Uh, so there we go. That is issue three. Alexis, we're going to start with you again. What are your notes? Well, first little thing. Casey Jones has always been one of my favorite characters. I don't know why. I just always loved him. Oh, yeah. And I love how we, some of his lines when uh, the headquarters are attacked are taken from the movie. The class is Pain 101, and your instructor is Casey Jones. Let's try <laughs> cricket instead i mean i'm sorry who doesn't love the I, who doesn't remember the cricket joke from the first ninja turtles movie uh, nobody understands cricket you gotta know what a crumpet is to understand cricket <laughs> <laughs> i always love that i don't know why that line has always stuck with me i will say that it explaining the time jumps does get a little confusing but the book does a really good job uh keeping you in the sense of which what what timeline we're in and when we're jumping around you know, I know that trying to explain gets a little confusing, yes. but I think they do a really good job. Again, we get more of the uh, black and white style flashback when April's talking about waking up in the hospital. It's like, I got, yeah, I woke up a week later only to found out I'd lost my husband, my friends, my home, my arm and my leg. And oh, yeah, surprise. I was pregnant. Yeah, uh, I will admit I didn't know who uh, Fugitoid slash Professor Honeycutt was. I, I think I'd heard uh, the name thrown around in some previous issues, but I was unfamiliar, so I had to do a little research for that. But thankfully, I was able to catch up pretty fast on that. Right. There's a bit here with Hitaro that uh, really is, it's kind of terrifying. He basically... In a sort of in a way to sh prove to himself that he's a god, he attempts to commit suicide. And I guess there's like robot drones in the city, and they stop him from dying. And he talks yeah. about how my angels will not allow it. It's it. it I don't know. It's just it's kind of creepy. Again, it's adding more to that loose cannon. Like, he's not all there. Fugitoid, I know you said you did your research, you know, just for our podcast listeners out there. If you didn't listen to the episode I dropped, just be aware, Fugitoid actually existed prior to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles being created. So this was an Eastman and Laird creation just before they created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Honeycutt was, at one point, a man, regular old man, just like you and me and ends up getting struck by lightning after he puts a head, uh, a device on his head and it causes him to end up getting his consciousness transported into a robot body, his robot servant named Sal. And he becomes a fugitive Android, a fugitoid, if you will, fugitoid. And then ends up running into the turtles. Obviously Baxter Stockman is obsessed with the fugitoid as to why I don't know. I imagine there's some kind of triceraton thing. I don't know. There's he obviously is either jealous or covets uh, the intelligence of the fugitoid Stockman being obsessed with fugitoid is a big part of this book because they are worried that if they activate the fugitoid, that was the whole reason they got attacked back in the past was because fugitoid, there was some kind of way that he was being tracked by Stockman. Stockman found fugitoid, therefore found the lair. Therefore, you know, we, we got our Casey and Leonardo ended up getting killed. That obsession is still there. And they're worried that if they activate fugitoid, they're going to find him again. Ben, what are your notes, man? If we're kind of going on the premise that like each issue is, a, is an homage to a different thing related to Ninja Turtles. If the last issue was, you know, the, the Frank Miller love letter, then this one is uh, giving some props to, you know, the movies and the TV series, as well as like parts of the original comic. Way back when we, we covered the very first issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
on this very podcast. That's right. The turtles start out as kind of street level characters and taking out like, you know, you know, like gangs and, and criminal, you know, street criminals and maybe the occasional like, you know, uh, mad scientists with, with Baxter Stockman and the Mausers, I think, in, in issue two or three. And then the the whole series takes a hard turn at like over the top, like wacky sci fi real quick, like real early on into the series, like, you know, issue around issue three or four. Fugitoid, I don't know about like publication wise. I don't know when it was actually made in relation to um, the original Turtle series, but timeline wise, like continuity wise, Fugitoid takes place exactly between issue four and five. That's right. Of, of Eastman and Larratt's uh, Ninja Turtle series. The Turtles are uh, beamed up to some uh, like a space station or like a like another planet in issue four and issue five they get beamed right back to Earth like right into in the middle of uh, you know Fugitoid about to be attacked and that's how they kind of cross paths at first so um, Fugitoid has actually been a character like a Ninja Turtle character like from very early on this um, you know pays us some appropriate tribute to that we see like the return of you know Baxter Stockman and the Mausers, and they they get really creative with the Mauser designs in this in this uh, series, which I like because you know right. why not? I'm with you, Ben. I like the little uh, floating drones. If it uh, Mauser design, I don't know what really what you'd call them, but just looking up and you see the sky is full of all of these little Mausers. It look like it, it almost forms a cloud. It's oh, I love that. I love that. They're like little Mauser soccer balls or something. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, there's that. You know, Casey Jones gets some play in this. And yeah, you get all of the, you know, the fun nods to the original movie, which I still contend only gets better with age. Like that's a rare feat for, you know, uh, for any any comic book movie to, to do. And just like in the previous issue, Raphael went down fighting, went down swinging. He went down, like, you know, taking as many foot ninjas as he possibly could with him. In this issue, we see Leo and we see uh, Casey Jones, and they kind of go out basically protecting each other, which is totally in character for both of them. You know, they, they go down they go down swinging, but, uh, you know, sort of having each other's backs. Like you said, we start seeing Hiroto's kind of getting weirder and weirder as time goes on i still don't know what to make of that like i don't i'm not sure what they were going for with this i mean it looks it's cool imagery but i'm not sure if it really goes anywhere right i mean he's jumping off the roof and he's i was just looking at that those panels again and what's funny is you know he's jumping off the roof he's falling down he's like i'm a god i'm a god incarnate you know i i will never die and he says my angels will not allow me and then right there below that, we we hit a we get a little box. It's a text box, but it's picking up on the next conversation on the next page. But it says you're crazy. I love how they put that in the middle of they put that at the end of this panel where he's falling and saying all this, uh, you know, this insane. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, it speaks for the, for all of us. Right. You know, this is just me, you know, making connections that probably aren't really there. But once again, going back to the crow, it's like it's it's almost like that scene at the beginning of the crow where, like, you know, Eric jumps out the window, but then immediately like grabs the window and, turn, and spins himself around and jumps back in. And there's no reason for him to do that other than it looks really <laughs> awesome. Right. <laughs> you know, we all love that scene. I, well, I did. I don't know about anybody yeah. else. I, we all love that scene, but it made no sense. Sometimes we let that slide just because it kind of looks cool. We see 
you know, Casey and her kind of crew is is kind of getting ready to uh, because they know, uh, like you said, Hiroto. Uh, I don't know if you have we reached the point where he kind of declared martial law in the city. That yeah, that yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah, yeah. Shows a big hologram. All right, bring right. Me the turtle. The look of future New York owes a lot to a lot of like you know eighties animes and and mangas. There's a lot. That with the the giant hologram, a la Grandmaster from Thor Ragnarok, kind of a thing. And I know that's not the first one to do it. That was just literally the first one that popped in my head. Yeah, right on. But yeah, we so we see like you know young Casey's kind of getting her crew together to uh, kind of form their their little ragtag band of uh, human resistance. Which no no good post apocalyptic uh, story is really right. complete without a ragtag band of human resistance. <laughs> And they're getting ready to do whatever they got to do, whatever kind of strike they want to make against uh, Hiroto and, and his, you know, whatever version of the Foot Clan that he has running New York right now. They get into it with April and, and Michelangelo. Michelangelo wants to kind of take on the Foot Clan by himself. And for him, it's a matter of avenging his, his family and, and kind of, you know, fulfilling, you know, his his honor as part of, you know, his, you know, the Hiroto or the uh, Kamato clan. April doesn't want her, obviously doesn't want her daughter to, to, to get killed fighting what and she knows Michelangelo knows that this is a suicide mission. She knows that he's going out there and he's not expecting to come back and her right. daughter's planning on following him. You know, she's trying to mitigate that. And yeah, the issue ends basically. The issue ends with the freaking Tumblr scene from Batman Begins. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. what that is. It's the turtle van, but it's the freaking Tumblr from Batman Begins. I call which, it the turtle tank. Yeah, turtle which, tank. Which is also another Frank Miller reference because this is the ta- the Batman the Batmobile from Dark Knight Returns, right? Which is where Batman Begins got that from. So you know, it's all wow. it's all a rich, it's all a rich tapestry. I'm gonna stop talking. I, now. I always forget that Frank Miller was one of the first ones to really visualize the Batmobile as a giant ass tank, not a sleek, stylish kind of car. Yeah, right. By the way, I'm just going to add one last note here. I'm a bit of a picky eater, but does anyone here actually find the idea of pizza with ham, pineapple, and jalapeno appetizing? I am firmly against pineapple on pizza. The other stuff sounds fine, uh, but but pineapple, no thank you. Take the jalapenos off. I'll eat ham and pineapple pizza, no problem. Jalapeno, negative. Come on. Negative, sir. Come on. (laughs) I can't. Jalapenos. I have an intolerance to green peppers, and Ugh. I'm with you, Ben. I'm not a fan of pineapple on pizza. So, so it's like, look, I admit I'm a picky eater, so I'm not the person to judge here. But I had to know what does anyone else think. <laughs> I love I I love pineapple and I love pizza, but I do not love them together. They do not need to go together. I've tried it. Done. I have. I don't like it. It's Surely. not. Doesn't work for me. As far as cartoon continuity goes versus this continuity, okay. Boy, the cartoon continuity. You want to talk about some toppings on pizza. They had a whole episode. There was a whole episode dedicated to that in the the cartoon, (laughs) man. It was weird pizza. That was a trap in the cut. That was a a shredder scheme. Oh, man. 
but oh, I do great. the conversation between uh, Casey and Leo on that. It's like, we make it out of here. Your turn to buy the pizza. Fine, but I pick the toppings. Ham, pineapple, jalapeno. What is wrong with you? Again, that is perfect. That is exactly what those two would be talking about while fighting. And it's, right. and it's a big old nod to, to the, you know, to the cartoon, really, because that's where, like, all the weird pizza topping stuff came, you know, originated from. That's right. And it's, it's been, it's existed ever since. There's so much affection for the past and, you know, in the series that even I'm, you know, as much as I know about the turtle and much as I know Jesse knows about the turtles, there's still stuff that we probably aren't picking up on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Real quick. Gobbledygook was the inaugural publication from Mirage Studios released in 1984. Although it does not contain any Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles stories, it is the first appearance of Fugitoid and related characters and features an advertisement for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number one. And because of this advertisement, many publications consider this magazine to be the Turtles first appearance. However, Mirage has always maintained that TMNT is number one. Uh, TMNT number one is their actual first appearance. Nevertheless, legitimate copies of the book are highly sought after by TMNT collectors due to its historic status. Now, I mentioned this in the other podcast, but that immediately reminded me of the previews magazine that solicited Walking Dead number one that went for like unbelievable mm-hmm. amounts of money. Mm-hmm. And I was That's- thinking. That's exactly what happened here. Gobbledygook, though, you got to think that, that that's got to be so rare to even try and find that magazine. Probably I, that it's a that's a common occurrence in, in comics too, where um, if you like some, there are people that are like like purists that go by literally the first any indication of like a cameo in a panel of some obscure thing and if if a certain character appears in that panel that's their first appearance like that was a whole thing with superior spider-man when that came out like he you first saw him in like two panels in an issue of daredevil that came that was published and hit the hit the stand hit the stores like a month or two before superior spider-man number one and you know that was a whole thing and that was considered you know the first appearance there is like, you know, depending on which price guide you follow, some some of them like, you know, consider different comics because I, I, I think that, you know, the Gobbledygook uh, magazine and, and versus like the TMNT number one, I want to say like the, the, the magazine appearance is considered like if you if you know, like the old Overstreet price guides, if you, you mm-hmm. remember those. Oh, yeah. Before I, I don't even know if they're still around. If they, if they're still around, they're probably strictly online. But that was like you know the comic collector's bible for like years. They put out a new price guide every year. They had you know with up to date prices, and they'd say like this is the first appearance of so and so. I think they always consider Overstreet always considered that magazine to be the first appearance of the Turtles. Wizard's price guide, on the other hand, stuck by, you know, TMNT number one was the first appearance. I remember that pretty, pretty clearly because I always used to look up like, you know, first appearance of certain characters. They made it pretty clear. That's that's a thing that goes gets swatted back and forth around in comic book circles. It's, you know, mostly it's just for buyers and sellers to kind of, you know, argue with each other to the, you know, sometimes to the point where it becomes a big circle jerk. But sometimes, you know, sometimes it's fun to kind of like kick around like, well, who what was the first appearance of who and what and where and why? Sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, I have this comic, it has this in it, and I want this much money for it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The debate of the actual true appearance of Wolverine is 
still done to this day online. Yeah. Hulk 180, Hulk 181. Well, it's the same thing. It's the same thing with Venom. Like, you know, the the first time you see Venom, you see like his hands, like in Amazing Spider-Man 298. The first time you see him as in a full panel is in issue uh, 299. And then the first story he appears in is issue 300. I've seen all three of those issues in different places listed as Venom's first appearance. Like, it's a whole thing. Like, it's... It gets tiresome after a while. After a while, it start it stops being fun when you oh, yeah. really when you. Run it's into all about trolling just, the other guy. At, yeah, at really. Point. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> all right, let's get into issue four here. So issue four, blood and snow. Uh, so we're doing some time jumps. So bear with me. In the past, we learned that Mikey was searching for Don and Don Splinter and the rest of the Hamato clan, only to learn Hiroto's treachery, leading them into an ambush. And even though the battle was won by the clan by Clan Hamato, Splinter and Donatello were casualties of the war. Now, Casey in the future here, present, should put it that way. Casey, Mikey, and April take their forces to infiltrate Stockman's co- compound. Casey has learned more and more under the teaching of Mikey, uh, Michelangelo. We learn Casey also has increased abilities, most likely due to April's exposure to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, the team storm the compound with the goal of using Fugitoid's head to take control of it. When Stockman gets wind, that honeycut Fugitoid is there. He races to find him to acquire his head, but when he does, April has already powered him. Just as Baxter grabs them, Fugitoid unleashes a powerful electrical blast, incinerating him and Stockman both. This also cuts power to the foot robots in the city, leaving Hiroto's tower without much of its mechanical defenses. This allows Mikey's team to get ready for the next step in their plan. So there we go. Issue four, Blood and Snow. Alexis, we'll start with you again. Tell me what you think. I'm going to need clarification on one thing. Okay. So, yeah, we have Donnie and Splinter in Japan as part of the peace talks. Did they did, did they then fly back to the States and that's when they brought Splintered in, bloodied and everything, into Casey and April's apartment? No. Wrath is already dead. So I think the way it goes, bear with me. I'm going to try and make sure I understand. What, and Ben, hop in here if I'm wrong. But I think. Oh, thanks. Okay. <laughs> so we have where the Foot Clan jumped the turtles. Raph goes and fights Karai. Now, at that point, this is 10 years before, I think, Her- I think Hiroto's six at this point when that happens. Okay. So they fight, Raph dies, and then Hiroto turns 16 and he says, I, I want peace. I want peace between the clans. But of course, it's a dastardly deed. He's, he's going to betray everybody. And so that's kind of what happens here. Donatello and Splinter are off to go find Clan Hamato over in Japan at that point. So the the whole Raft thing, there's 10 years that pass between Raft dying and the peace talks. And then Donnie and Splinter go over to Japan while Leonardo, then remember they mentioned that they have to be radio silent. So they have no idea what's happened back in the States, that the, the lair has been attacked. So they don't know that that's happening. So they land in Japan and they're going to go talk to Clan Hamato. At that point, they still think these peace talks are on. And sure enough, he shows up and ambushes them and ends up killing Donatello and Splinter uh, before Mikey could find him. Yep, there's a trap. I guess I was confused because I could have sworn Raph charges in yelling at the foot, you killed my father. Well, I think he was he was badly injured. He wasn't dead at that point, though. I think this was prior to Raphael's nowhere anywhere during the lair battle and, of course, Japan. 
So there you go. I guess part of me also thinks that the idea of Splinter and Donatello thinking they could achieve peace after Raphael was killed by the foot. It's just, I don't know, maybe... Right. I, I guess there maybe I, I don't know. I'm usually the optimistic one in the group here. I know, but part of me is just like you guys would actually make peace after they kill your brother. The only thing, and of course they're they're hesitant to that. I mean, you can they talk about that. Like, oh, do we should we trust him or not? But their only hope is that the fact that okay, Hiroto's turned 16. We've got a new leader. Shredder's out of the picture. Karai's in a coma. We've got a new leader who wants to talk peace. Let's see what he has to say. Should have known better. And a matter of fact, they knew better because they bring weapons. Remember how there's a point where the that one guy who's speaking for Hiroto is like, why did you bring weapons? They're like, well, you know, we kind of know what you guys did in the past. Oh, well, this is peace talks. You should have you, you should have never brought weapons to it. But it's of not course, enough weapons. They should have yeah. brought more. We- they should have brought more, more weapons. What else, Alexis? Anything else you got there? Oh, artistic point. I do love the flashback with Donatello and Splinter in Japan is given a very, it's like a uh, purple hue to the tone. It's, it helps it to stand out from some of the other flashbacks. I think it's a very nice touch. Again, I, we go back to the black and white within Michelangelo's. Something I didn't bring up in the second issue when Mikey's talking about going into Japan and thinking he was going to die. He talks about how his mutation wouldn't let him die. There's another factor that, don't know if they're alluding to, but if they are, it's a smart idea. Uh, turtles and tortoises uh, can hibernate. Basically, their body just kind of goes into a stasis. Their heartbeat slows, and they just sort of sleep off in the cold. Most reptiles do. So part of me is wondering when uh, Michelangelo succumbed to the cold in the mountains. Yes, it was his mutation, but I think part of it is also his uh, turtle you know, genetics saying, oh, cold, time to shut down. This is where we get to see kind of, you know, Michelangelo break a little bit back in the past and kind of how he is the way he is right now. Like he he wants to die and nothing will let him die. He has nothing. He feels he has nothing else left to live for. And then it's he starts to understand that he is the one that needs to avenge his family. He starts hearing voices. So you're you're kind of worried about him. We already we have we've already been worried about Michelangelo since the beginning because he's been talking to his dead brothers this whole time. But it's his coping mechanism. It's the only way that he knows how to cope with what happened is to continue to talk to his brothers. And it's it's sad, uh, but it also you know shows you that he's trying to deal with it. He's trying to move on uh, as best as he can, and he's trying to put an end to what what has happened to him. And the only, the only closure he could get clearly is to kill uh, the person that deceived him. And that's uh, Roku Hiroto. I think my only other thing is I really am disappointed how little we see of this new design of Baxter Stockman. Uh, it's clear he's taken extreme measures to stay alive. Certain uh, elements in the comics do take from that. And I know there's at least one of the animated series that got severely edited because they show that Baxter was getting chopped up piece by piece whatever time he failed the shredder. Oh, wow. Yeah, it got uh, pretty disturbing. Yeah. Uh, but, but we really don't get a good look at his new form uh, until the very end. And even then, it's very much so overwhelmed by uh, the, you know, the, the final act of Professor Honeycutt. Mm-hmm. I, 
I would have liked at least one decent panel showing off the new Baxter Stockman and what he looked like. Right, right. Yeah, he's he's definitely old. He's kind of his skin is it's almost zombie like (laughs) when you look at him. It's more cyborg than zombie, probably. But it's he's a scary looking individual. That's for sure. Um, Ben, what are your notes, man? This is probably going to be my biggest criticism of, of the entire series is just. This is where I kind of feel like, you know, the um, how ambitious they got with kind of the back and forth time jumps. This is where it felt like it collapsed under its own weight. Um, we're, we're jumping back and forth in time uh, between two separate points in the past and two separate points in like the present slash future. And they try very hard to differentiate each time period through the art style. And I can appreciate that. But in some points, I don't feel like the art style was different enough to where you got that, you know, what time period these, you know, these narratives are kind of supposed to exist in. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I wasn't reading carefully enough. It was kind of a challenge to keep up with what's supposed to be happening when in relation to what else is happening elsewhere and Mm -hmm. else when. The flashback in Japan, I love how, you know, how it's how it's set up. I love how how it's how it plays out. Once again, like you guys were, you know, going through, you know, when exactly is this taking place and when exactly does it take place in relation to other stuff that we've seen? I have the same problem. Right. Uh, it's a little bit tricky to figure out like where when this is happening versus what we've already seen has already happened. Is this happening before that? Is it happening after that? I understand the narrative device they're trying to stick with, but, you know, as an artist, like I can appreciate, you know, displaying enough faith in the artists of the series to where I'm going to rely on the artist to, you know, where the style is going to tell the reader exactly what they need to know about when this is taking place. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to, we're not going to include any kind of time, any kind of month, day, year before this, before that, any kind of caption box, anything like that. It could have used that is what I'm yeah, saying. It, like, right. it could it could have used that later on, but that's probably the biggest problem that I had was, you know, when I reached this point, I'm like, when, what, when the hell did this take place <laughs> against what we've already, what's already happened or what, what what's happening after this right uh when we when we go on the scene itself is like it, it's pretty great like you know we see you know hamato clan versus oroku clan and um how brutal how brutal and how like like uh, relentless is splinter dude splinter is taking heads <laughs> off man like know, dude he's taking head it, it, like that it, once again like if you're going to have a last stab you're going to show Splinter's last stand before he goes out, like he goes out swinging, he goes out claiming some heads, like it's yeah. it's something, and it's it uh, I I appreciate that. And Donnie's not, Donnie's not slouching either, man. Like he's he's got his bow staff sticking in people's faces. Yeah, that's to the point where I'm like, did he have a spear? Like, did he stick a spear on the end of one of those? <laughs> like he's literally stabbing people with it. It is badass. Um, yeah, I think in in some continuities he actually sharpens the ends of the, that bow staff. So, Ooh. 
it's the dorkiest humble brag ever, but I keep bring coming back to it that I read the novelization of the the original Ninja Turtle movie. Oh, nice! I, th- I think that's where I think that's where I first read like saw that where like you know yeah he sharpens the 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 points of the the bow staff so you know that that would do the trick. You could you could impale some 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 people on on something like that. I do love that line that the uh, the master says. There are people, creatures, teachers, warriors, heroes, and legends. Your father was all of these. Mm, yeah, yeah that kind of says it all, doesn't it? If I had to name something that they were trying to pay tribute to in this issue, it, it, it's back to Frank Miller, but it's um, Frank Miller's Ronin. There's a lot, you know, which takes place in two different timelines. It takes place in, you know, feudal samurai, you know, Japan, and then in, in cyberpunk future. And we see both of those after a fashion. We see we see both of those in this issue. The art style is changed up a little bit to the point where, like, you know, it definitely reminded like the, the present day art style. Uh, the lines are thinner. There's a little bit more cross hatching. That led me to believe that this is leaning a lot more on the style that Frank Miller borrowed, basically borrowed from um, from Mobius, mm. a.k.a. Um, Jean Girard, at that time. There was, in the 80s, there was this weird, like, symbiosis of, like, European artists borrowing from Japanese artists and then, like, American artists borrowing from European artists that were influenced by Japanese artists, and it was all, like, a big cycle. Frank Miller to Mobius to, like, a lot of different manga artists was, there was a lot of that, and it influenced a lot of other things in the 80s, and Ronan was one of them. Ronan was, like, the biggest, the, probably the best example of that. Of, of where that cycle came full circle. If you haven't read Frank Miller's Ronin, please do. It's fantastic. And if you've ever seen Samurai Jack, you know, Jenny Tartakovsky probably had a lot of explaining to do uh, 15 years ago, <laughs> but we'll leave that alone. Once again, we get, you know, we get some more of, uh, you know, the Eastman Lara flashback style. I appreciate that. You guys mentioned, you know, Michelangelo going up into the uh, into the wilderness and into the snow and kind of hibernating. I think this is where he kind of like because he said he he stayed uh, solitary and alone for like years on end. This is probably where his mind kind of started going south right and this is where you can kind of like trace back where he's talking with you know with the other with his brothers the beginnings of that meanwhile back in you know back present day slash post-apocalyptic future like all hell's breaking loose baxter stockman looks like this odd combination of cyborg crossed with freddy (laughs) krueger um that's what that that's how I looked at it. Yeah, that's that's a way better description because his face is very reminiscent of Freddy Krueger. Absolutely. Yeah. But I love I love the trap that they sprung on him like at the end, like the you know, the fooled you fugitory just, you know, like kamikazes him at the end. That's great. I I expected something like that, but it's still great to see that. Like, you know. Finally got his prize. You yeah. shall not pass. But yeah, and, and then, you know, it sets up, you know, this is probably got to, this kind of has to end the only way that it can end. And that's kind of one-on-one and that sets it up and towards the end. Um, it's the fight for New York City and... It's got to be the what's left of the Hamato clan versus what's left of the Foot clan. And, you know, that we go from there. That's right. All right. Well, here we go. 
Issue five, the last Ronin, Michelangelo, you know, getting he's getting ready. They're getting prepared. He has it out with his brother's ghosts and decides to take the attack to Hiroto himself. As again, he doesn't want anybody else getting hurt. He doesn't want to involve anybody else. He's lost so much. He doesn't want to have this on his shoulders. So he wants to take all that he can up against the Foot Clan and also try to end Hiroto. So Michelangelo, again, we're going back to the tower, enters Hiroto's tower and has to make his way through some opposition. Speaking of video games, this felt very, very much like a video game. One of which is this humongous soldier fights him and then he ends up fighting a robot that has some wings, I assume based off of a crow or whatever is going through wacky Hiroto's mind here. But he ends up fighting this big robot right after that and making his way to Hiroto, who is ready in his own synthetic Shredder-esque outfit. It's like this liquid metal. Imagine Shredder, but uh, add some T-1000 in with it. These guys, they are fighting, all right? Their brutal battle takes them from the top of the tower to the outside, crashing down through a sewer. And as their fight continues, Michelangelo can feel he is slowing and is having a hard time finding a chink in Hiroto's armor. So... When Hiroto's tower explodes, Michelangelo hits him hard enough to send him off of a ledge, but gets baited in and stabbed in the side. As Michelangelo heads back down into the sewer, he is able to take some offense to Hiroto at this time until the sewer is flooded, washing them out into a drainage ditch. When Michelangelo has Hiroto nearly beaten, Hiroto unleashes a powerful electrical blast that discharges in the water, killing him and severely injuring Michelangelo. As Michelangelo crawls onto the, a nearby bank, Casey Marie finds him, and he tells her with his dying words to no peace. All right, now, there. trust me, that is a very poignant part of this book where at the back of this, I think it was the journal or, or the, the teachings or whatever, he had no peace written there, which was N-O and then the word peace. And then at the time he hands this to Casey Marie at the end of this book, he put K at the front and W at the end, and it became no K N O W piece. So anyway, that explanation aside. Uh, so yeah, Michelangelo dies there in in her arms. We we get a little bit of an aside where he she talks with she talks with April, and she obviously tells April, "Hey, I, I know I'm a mutant." So she's or she know she knows she is mutated in some fashion, making herself stronger. So Casey knows that. Now, in the epilogue, uh, Casey is still carrying on her training. You know, she's become a student, and Michelangelo, was, it seemed like he was kind of resistant to the idea at first, uh, but became her sensei. And uh, she is still carrying on her training after Michelangelo's death, and she and April are going to grow some more turtles. <laughs> so April's been studying this mutation for quite a while. They have four turtles in what uh, looks to be like an incubator, or a little place, keep these turtles nice and safe, and she's trying to get them to grow into mutant turtles. So that's how we end our fifth and final issue of The Last Ronin. So Alexis, let me hear what you have to say. Absolutely love the epilogue, although I am dying to hear her call the turtles something like Picasso, Rockwell, Warhol, and Sherman Williams. <laughs> Sherman Williams! <laughs> I'd like to thank uh, Tiny Toons for that joke. Uh, all right, then. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, but... <laughs> well, you know the episode I'm talking about, don't you, Ben? I absolutely do. Yeah, the immature radioactive, radioactive slugs. <laughs> 
Oh, nice. Yeah, we'll give you three guesses, Jesse, what that was parodying. Mm-hmm, I wonder. Uh, but I'm not going to lie, I thought the final act that killed uh, Hitoro was kind of anticlimactic. Okay. Mm-hmm. You wanted more? Well, the fight was really great, but then what takes them out, it's like, is the shock, and it takes them both out, but it's just like, ha-ha, boom, splash, done. Right. Right. I mean, in a book full of heads getting chopped off, limbs getting removed, this guy gets electrocuted. (sighs) I mean, I guess you're kind of painted into a corner when you have a liquid metal suit, I assume. But my gosh, I yeah, I'll agree. I feel like I would have wanted more, too. I guess I'm also just trying to figure out, did he discharge it, not thinking clearly that he was in the water? Did Michelangelo overload it somehow when it did that? I, I guess... I, I don't know. It just I can't quite figure out how it happened. And in doing that, you don't know. Did Patoro uh, screw himself over? Did Mike finally find the weakness in the armor? And, and not knowing anything like that, it kind of it does dampen the final blow a little bit. I know that it, it actually came up at first in the last issue, but I thought the whole thing about uh, Casey being mutated. Well, a cool factor. I did think that kind of came out of nowhere. Right. I mean, he talks about how she's stronger and faster than uh, most others, but he was still able to kick her ass in the previous issue. And then all of a sudden we have a scene of her punching a brick wall. (laughs) Now, again, I'm not against the idea of her having a mutation because of how much time April and Casey spent around the mutagen, the idea that it maybe it's almost kind of like a bit of a, it has a bit of a radioactive signature or something. That's kind of a cool idea. I just wish we had seen earlier hints. And if they did, I did not notice them. If there, if there are earlier hints in the previous uh, books that show her showing more advanced strength, speed and healing, and I did not pick up on that, then I will retract my statements. I don't think it's obvious. I'll go ahead and throw like, some of the things I thought about uh, with this last issue. And I'll let you finish it up here, Ben. Mikey going to heaven was pretty rough on me. (laughs) I mean, him waking up in the bed and his brothers being around them, they're just going to go out uh, and do what we wanted the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to do for the longest time. And that's go out and have a good time, Um, eat some pizza and have a blast running around the city. That's like quintessential Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It was sad Man, you know, all four turtles are dead. Splinter's dead. The way that they end this after Michelangelo dies and what we see him uh, seeing after he dies is it's it's heartbreaking and heartwarming at the bittersweet, bittersweet at the uh, all at the same time because he finally gets back what he lost and that's his family. I'm pulling back Benjamin J. Cologne. Please let us know what you think, man. Once again, we're gonna you know we mark the uh, what this may or may not have been homaging. And this was probably Dark Knight Returns era Frank Miller that they were leaning on to the point where, like, I think Kevin Eastman did a variant cover that looked um, like had a uh, lightning. Yeah, the lightning. I mean, yep. yeah, it's not that hard to deduce. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. Um, there are a couple of things I really loved about this issue. And there are a couple of things that let me down about this issue. Yeah, the 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 fight is a little bit reminiscent of you know kind of like the Superman Batman climax of of Dark Knight Returns somewhat. Yeah, I'm a little bit with you guys. It was a little bit anticlimactic. Just uh, first of all because I wasn't expecting them to go the liquid metal shredder route with that. Um, in the past couple of issues, we saw like um, Hirota was wearing 
he was wearing like you know different aspects of like the shredder garb i thought he was gonna put it all together like in one scene he's got like the purple cloak and in the other scene in other scenes he's wearing armor and i thought we were gonna get something like that and right instead, right in, instead we got like something we got something completely different that i wasn't expecting i thought they were gonna try to lean a little bit more on like some kind of homage to like the the first Ninja Turtles issue where like if we remember like the big surprise and in, in hindsight it was a surprise because we all know like Shredder's the recurring villain in Ninja Turtles but he dies in the first issue of the comic mm-hmm. because Leonardo just literally just just impales him with a sword. I thought we were gonna get something like that like you know uh, Michelangelo was gonna find some way to get to get that armor off of him long enough to put a sword in his, you know, through his guts or something like that. And that doesn't happen. I always hate when people like, you know, come up with imaginary scenarios in their head and then get mad when the actual thing that they're mad, you know, the, the thing that they're reading doesn't follow what they imagined it should, you know, they thought it was going to be in their head. So I don't want to dwell on that too much. But it didn't give us a whole lot. Like, it was just, you know, there was a fight, and then this guy kind of died. He kind of, for all that he was built up for four issues, he kind of went out like a punk, if I had to put it, you know, bluntly. In the first issue, we see Karai, like, in a, you know, in suspended animation. I thought something was going to come of that, where, like, you know, maybe she finally comes out of it and, you know, joins the fight somehow or something like that. Nothing comes from that, which I was disappointed by that. He ends up like he uh, to put that, you know, put that uh, insane topping on top of the insane Sunday. He shoves his armored fist, his spiked fist through the the pod that she's in and stabs her and kills her. Yeah, that was so weird. Like, I'm like, where did that come oh, from? Right. This yeah. guy is so off, like in his but, own doing his own thing. You don't un- unpredictable. That's yeah, but about the only it, thing you can say. Right. It's, it's uh, yeah, okay, you know, it was, and it's was good, this there- good. Sure that they we didn't have a surprise sequel with Karai coming out of the coffin. Okay, maybe <laughs> that would have that would have been nice. That would have been something. I mean, you know, we're by the end where we're we're making new Ninja Turtles. Maybe you know, make a new you know, make a new clone the Shredder or something. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I was a little bit disappointed in that the the reveal, which was revealed you know in a previous issue that uh, Casey was all you know basically. A mutant due to like exposure to you know Casey you know uh, Casey Senior his and April their exposure to the turtles. The first thing I thought of was um, River Song and Doctor Who because that's almost exactly like her origin. You know they they go back like they're trying to figure out how like you know River is is a time lord and they're saying like you know that would have had to she would have had to have tremendous exposure to like the time vortex and right. all this sort of thing and and just the revelation of the comic reminded me of that episode of the of, of doctor who where they they finally realized like oh the the only time that she would have had exposure to that would have been on amy and rory's wedding night oops right yep. yeah so <laughs> that's where my that's where my mind went to immediately and i'd like to thank everybody for this uh detour through my uh my nerd brain uh, <laughs> I love it. you know michelangelo die you know goes out pretty much the only way he can and this is where like you know some of the anticlimactic stuff in this issue kind of redeems itself in the very end because you see 
the ending where like Michelangelo kind of wakes up and you know he's with his brothers and he's with Splinter and he's with Casey Jones and they're basically just you know going out into the city and that's the hereafter for him uh, that actually reminds me of um, Neil Gaiman wrote a Batman story uh, called Whatever Happened to the Cape Crusader. And it kind of details like the, the it's two issues. The first issue is basically Batman's funeral. And I think like all of his enemies are attending it and nobody's quite sure what happened to him. Everybody's got their own, you know, their own Batman story. And the end of the second issue basically details where Batman goes when he dies and mm-hmm. it go you know i mean spoiler for whatever happened to cape crusader it's an old story you should all read it even though i'm spoiling it for you right now it's a very good story but you see like batman kind of going through all of his like his life is kind of flashing before his eyes and the last thing he sees is him being born and sort of you know this unfamiliar this unspecific voice from the hereafter tells him like you know what's your reward what's batman's reward in the afterlife well batman's reward in the afterlife is you get to be batman and that that that's what this reminds me of like the ninja turtles their reward in the afterlife is they get to be ninja turtles they get to be you know what they've always been i'm gonna jump off that real quick because sure. looking at looking at that uh, looking at that scene uh, this book is dark, folks. And when I say dark, not a whole lot of sunshine. It's heavy duty, Doc. <laughs> right, sir. <laughs> but there's not a whole lot of sunshine. And a lot of the things when you're reading some Turtles comics or watching the Turtles movie, you know, even the newer ones, they don't want to go out into the city during the day because they're afraid of being seen. And what's wonderful about this moment is when they go out and they're sitting, they're sitting on top of a city rooftop. I think they're watching the sun, uh, either the sunrise or the sunset. Either way, it is completely daylight. They can just go and be uh, and enjoy themselves. I-, I noticed that, too. Like, it's very bright. It's compared to the rest of this book. That whole scene is very bright, especially when they're out there in the middle. Of, reminded me more of the cartoon than it did of any any of the stuff we got in this book. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I would guess that that's like sunrise. Maybe not, but that's what it seems like to me just based on how it looks. Totally works for what you were talking about. Like the, they not only get to be the turtles and, and exist in their city, but they don't have to hide in the shadows anymore. Right. And that's that seems appropriate for like, you know, for the whatever great beyond they might experience. Don't you think? I agree. 100 percent. Definitely. So and then we get to um the ending, the very end, like the epilogue, we may be seeing a new, you know, the, this may lead to like a new generation of Ninja Turtles because the very last page. And I mentioned, uh, you know, I mentioned, uh, I guess, off recording this page, this very, very last page where uh, Casey is looking, you know, there's this glass tube or case of, of, you know, these four baby turtles. That got spoiled for me like months ago. I don't even remember where I saw this page, but I know I definitely saw this page. I had no idea what it was from at the time. Wow. Um, I had no clue what it was from. And now, like when I saw that, when I saw that at the very end, I'm like, oh, that's what that is. Oh, that's perfect. (laughs) That's so good. And no idea. Uh, it's because I this is this Facebook I, uh, group I follow. It's called um, Out of Context Comics. So literally the whole point of that 
uh, Facebook group is that they post images from comics with absolutely no context. And sometimes it's hilarious and sometimes it's weird. And most of the time it's just like, you know, thirst traps. Um, but uh, yeah, I know that group, Jesse. A lot of times when I send you those individual comic panels, it's from that. Oh, OK. All right. So, uh, all right. Good, I'm going to have to find it. It's a, it's a good group. About- Remember the one I sent you about Mr. Sinister and he was like, and there was like, no one's going to compliment me on my cloak. It was from that. <laughs> it's a good, <laughs> it's a, it's a good group. You should all follow it. Anyway. Love it. Yeah. That's where I saw that from. And, and, uh, now, you know, now with, with context, now that makes all kinds of sense. And I'm like, and immediately I thought like that is as perfect an ending to this as it could possibly get is just, uh, they're growing new Ninja Turtles. And, right. uh, now, you know, we can imagine eventually, you know, like, you know, young Casey is going to end up being the sensei to this, these new, these new Ninja Turtles. And that's pretty great. I don't remember the exact quote in the story, but it's something like, you know, soldiers die, but the war goes on. Okay, Hiroto's gone, but that's not going, you know, that doesn't fix all of the problems that he created and that this, you know, that this future world is in the middle of maybe there needs to be a new generation of teenage mutant ninja turtles to kind of protect this uh you know this far-flung post-apocalyptic cyberpunk uh future city uh so you know everything kind of comes full circle and i I dig that that's uh like i said that 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 was as as good as as many issues as i had with the final part of the story that ending probably was the only, like, the best possible ending that it could have had. That's awesome. All right. Well, we did it, <laughs> folks. We we did uh, all five issues of The Last Ronin. I'm a sucker for stories like this. It is something that if somebody wanted to read a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle story, I would have no problem giving them this and just being like, okay, look, understand it's not the, it's not the quintessential, you know, it's, it is not the representative a representative of the cartoon. This is dark. It's serious, but it's good. If you like action, uh, I mean, you're, you're going to probably find something in here that you would enjoy, especially if you like mystery. It, it's, it's a good time all around. I mean, I think I, I really enjoyed it. So it's so Alexis. Great. You know, I'm glad you brought this up. I'm glad we got to talk about it. Now you have your opportunity here to go ahead and plug some things. So let's uh, let's let the listeners know where they can find you and what you've been doing. All right. Well, let's go ahead and plug Honeysuckle Rose Creations, where fashion meets fandom at the intersection of geek and chic. Just wrapped up a convention in Hutchison, Kansas, a.k.a. the official Smallville. Had a lot of fun there. We're getting ready for a big trip down to Texas. We are going to be working the greater Austin Comic-Con and Comic-Palooza. It's first time working Comic-Palooza, but we've been to Austin a couple of times, and it is a fun show, and I absolutely love it. Cannot wait for that. After that, we have got the Colorado Springs Comic Con. We are going to be heading back also to the Cincinnati Comic Expo coming up this fall. And we are making our triumphant return to Anime Nebraskon. This is a show that we uh, didn't get a chance to do the last couple of years, but we're going back to it. And we are so looking forward to it. That is such a great convention. Cannot wait. In the meantime, you can always find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And apparently now I have to start plugging Pinterest for some reason. We're also on there. Of course, you can always find our online shops on Etsy and Handmade at Amazon. They are fully stocked and ready to go. That's Honeysuckle Rose Creations, the intersection of geek and chic. Folks, Alexis and myself, we do a trivia show. 
we had we didn't get a chance to do one this last month. Uh, things kind of worked against us in that in that instance. But listen, if you check out Tripped Up Trivia, that's going to be in the archives on the Rattlech and Broadcasting Network. It's me and Alexis doing trivia. We have uh, four or five people come on there and they test their metal against each other, different themes each month. All right, Benjamin J. Cologne. Now I I said Benjamin, come on and talk about Last Ronin. He sends me a message today. He says, I don't know how much I'll have to add to it. A BS, <laughs> sir. Yeah, I know. You get me on a microphone and, you you know, you. <laughs> if I've got a six pack in the freezer and I'm on a microphone, I will find things to talk incessantly about. I love it, man. I'm so glad you got to get on here and talk turtles with me, man. So tell me what tell me what's been going on with you. I know I've been watching Sketchbook Saturday pop up and uh, uh, I don't think you're doing any cons here recently. Is that right? No, um, I was trying to get to to um, Fan Expo Boston this year. I don't think that's going to end up happening. I think I'm, I'm I think this year's kind of a wash for me as far as conventions go. Um, uh, and I say this as your friend and a fellow artist, don't do fan expo shows. Yeah, I've been, so I've been told, um, you know, the uh, Megacon shows in or- Orlando uh, technically fan expo run. So, I mean, it, all of my convention going, all of my convention exhibitions are mostly logistics based. They're based on uh, what cities do I have a couch to sleep on? So I know that feeling. At the end of this year, I'm I'm looking into a Chiller Theater Convention in, in New Jersey, which I've gone to many times. I've I've really been interested in exhibiting at. It's uh, more specifically a horror convention. I am hoping to be able to like like I've got a lot of horror artwork. Uh, that I could make prints of. I want to make more. I want to have a ton of content if I'm going to exhibit strictly horror-based artwork at at, uh, at that convention. Stay tuned to you know my social media accounts to see if that becomes a reality. But it's something I'm interested in because they do they do two conventions a year. One is in April. One is uh, Halloween weekend. Presumably, the Halloween weekend one is the more active, the more lucrative one. You figure, you know, if you're going to do something for Halloween, you could do worse than attending a horror convention. So it seems like the place to be. And it's a reasonable traveling distance. You know, I got friends in Jersey. Uh, and once again, I got a crowd. I got a couch I could crash on if I need to. Uh, that's the plan for now. That's not a sure thing, but that's what I'm working towards uh, for the moment. With that in mind, you can follow me on all of the uh, various social meds. I am Epic Benjamin J on all of the things that includes Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and Discord. And I'm hoping I'm not forgetting anything. That was five things, right? Anybody? <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't counting. <laughs> Fine. It was. Don't worry about it. Um, I'm hoping to get back on Twitch. I've taken a break. Like I, I was on vacation uh, late last month, and that sort of stretched into the entire month of June, which it shouldn't have. But it tends to do that. That's what it tends to happen when I take uh, vacations where I leave home. I tend to get lazy. I tend to fall behind on you know my streaming uh, schedule. I'm going to try to get back back to normal because I've got a staycation coming, uh, which would be the best time to, you know, kind of get back into Twitch streaming. I'm in the middle of a commission. I want to do more, like I said, horror artwork for uh, Chiller Theater Convention, which is upcoming. And I want to get back to streaming Sketchbook Saturday sketches. Um, Yeah. I've been doing a lot of, um, you know, Pride Month uh, related stuff. 
Sketchbook Saturday stuff that I've been doing for Pride Month. Um, I want to do right by the uh, LGBTQ community. And, um, you know, there, there's only so much you can do when you're trying to be an ally to to, uh, to a particular community. My thing is I've, I've, I've included, you know, comic book figures that are of the LGBTQ community and also real life figures in the community and i've tried to give a little bit of a you know little history lesson in so much as i'm capable of giving and that's my little way of you know contributing to you know whole pride month um, festivities and i'm going to keep doing that you know we're recording this on friday tomorrow i'll have something new out god knows when this, this is coming out but uh so i probably shouldn't be so specific uh to a date but that's fine <laughs> Follow me, you know, if you follow me on all of those social media platforms, you'll see my work, you'll see what I've done, and um, I hope you learn something from, uh, you know, in what little I'm able to uh, convey to anybody that may be watching. <laughs> Thanks in advance for following and checking out what I have to offer art-wise. All right. I'll keep my stuff kind of short here. I, you can go on to the Unspoken Issues podcast Facebook page. You can like that. Uh, the Unspoken Issues is a 90-centric podcast. Uh, the plan is to our next, I think our next episode is going to be uh, this, what is it called? Colorblindness, a four-issue sleepwalker uh, comic story came out in the early 90s, if I remember correctly. So that will be airing at some point. And, uh, of course, like I said, you could probably go back into the archive and find the Fugitoid episode that I did prior to this one. Done all sorts of, uh, oh boy, some solo ventures here recently. I hopped into a Bayou Billy comic from Archie Comics that was a five-issue series based off of the Nintendo game, Bayou Billy. And, boy, was it interesting. Mad Balls, I've got an, uh, an episode about yeah. my experience with reading Ed, mad balls number one and count ducula number one you know I, it, it's all out there if you like comics uh, subscribe to the source material comics feed we have all sorts of fun i think that's it uh so for alexis hana for benjamin j cologne i am jesse starcher thank you all very much for joining us tonight have a good one turtle power Thank you all for joining us. Make sure to give that Rattelich in Broadcasting Facebook page a like to stay up on top of all the great podcasts we have to offer. We are at home on Spreaker, but you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and recently we have hit the air on Spotify. Find your favorite podcast platform and type in R-A-D-U-L-I-C-H to subscribe for some great content. If you enjoyed this show, please feel free to share and spread the word. And as always, we appreciate any feedback and look forward to entertaining you again soon.